You are listening to the Overt Action Podcast. For more information on today's intelligence issues from intelligence professionals, go to www.overtaction.org. Acknowledging our mistakes and absorbing the lessons of the past is fundamental to our ability to succeed in our mission and is one of the great strengths of this organization. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. How often do you make predictions in your daily life? The NBA Finals are starting tonight, uh, Thursday night, and you may say, well, Vegas has Golden State Warriors uh, as 3-1 to one favorites, but LeBron James is by far the best player in basketball, so you know what? I think the Cavaliers are going to win this one in six. Or you might wake up in the morning and look at the weather forecast, poke your head outside and say it's overcast, so you know what? It's going to rain tonight. You probably make those kinds of predictions Every single day without even thinking about it, just in your daily conversations. But what if your job was to make predictions, whether you wanted to or not, on some of the most important things facing our country? National security type issues. Now, what if I told you about a made-up place called Oslandian? Sorry for coming up with such a lame name, but it's the best I could do. But Oslandia is a relatively normal place. It's got a strong economy, a strong military, uh, generally a peace-loving country, but actively involved in the world. And then one day, pretty much out of the blue, Oslandia is attacked by another country, or at least people connected to another country, and it kills thousands of Oslandia's citizens. And we're now in the days afterward, and your boss comes to you and says, okay, well, what's Oslandia going to do now that it was attacked? And you have to give him some sort of answer. Now, based on the information I've given you, and again, I know this, I haven't given you very much, what would you say? Now, I suspect you might answer in a couple ways. You would suggest that, Oslandia may strike back at the country from where the guys who attacked them came from. Uh, if they're not fearing, feeling very uh, secure about the position, they may sue for peace. Or maybe they demand that the perpetrators, the people responsible for the attack, were, were handed over to them. Or they might you know, do something somewhere in the middle there. Do you think it's possible that you might suggest that Oslandia would end up attacking a whole other country altogether that in reality had nothing to do with the original attack? Is that something you'd say? Because I suspect not. But if you look at the kinds of questions that intelligence analysts are asked to answer every single day, a lot of times that's exactly what it's like, and you're not getting a lot more information than what I just provided you, you know, given the context. Obviously, you know, and typically we're talking about much more tactical issues. But now think about that story I just told you about Oslandia 
And it doesn't sound a lot different than what the United States did after 9-11. Now, if you were an Iraqi intelligence analyst, and obviously you heard about 9-11, whether it was through the news or you know through your intelligence sources, do you think any of them on September 12, 2001, went to Saddam Hussein and said, you know, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda just attacked the United States, and we think that, yeah, they're going to go after the Taliban, they're going to go after al-Qaeda, but they're going to come after us too. I highly doubt it. And you think about the degree of uncertainty that goes into these kinds of questions that we face every day. And by we now, I'm talking about intelligence analysts. I used to be an intelligence analyst. I worked at uh, the CIA for the better part of eight years, uh, working on terrorism for better part of six of those, and then the last two on illicit finance. And again, I'm, I'm asking a huge, wide-ranging question. But looking at terrorist groups and insurgent groups operating in the Middle East, which is what I did, you had to answer questions that frankly weren't much different, even if the scale and the context we were talking about uh, was, was much smaller. In a lot of ways, you're being asked to read people's minds and to think about how they're going to react to the crazy things that happens in this world. So both plans and intentions, trying to do plans and intentions. It's one of the toughest things that I think we can ask anyone to do. And one point I ought to make here, a lot of this, <clears throat> at least for today's conversation, a lot of the things I'm talking about, again, is, is measuring things like terrorism, insurger, insurgency, doing things like political analysis. It's, it's a little different than your standard military analysis where you're counting tanks and submarines and, and things that can actually be counted. Talking about political analysis or analysis of insurgencies, frequently you're having to look at things that are almost impossible to measure even in the event that you had perfect intelligence, which you basically never do. But if you're trying to figure out how big an insurgent group is, if you want to get really pointy-headed about it, you're going to end up having a conversation about, well, what makes a member of this particular group. So just by example, Al-Qaeda. What makes a member of Al-Qaeda? Is it someone, if I stand up and say I'm an Al-Qaeda, am I suddenly an Al-Qaeda member? Is it, do you have to do something? Do you have to get the secret handshake? It, it sounds bizarre and it sounds annoying and unimportant. Uh, it certainly can be annoying. But the problem is if you're trying to measure things like a group's capacity whether it's the capacity to fight in Pakistan or Iraq or Syria or its capacity to strike the United States, how do you measure that? It's, just, it's dramatically more difficult than saying Russia's got 35 tanks uh, in this part of the Ukraine and this many guns, and, and hence we think it can do this much damage. Now, I'm not suggesting that military analysis is any easier. I, typically, it's not, and that often has to do with the amount of intelligence gaps that we have. But it is different, and in a lot of ways, the uncertainty is much, much higher uh, when you're doing political analysis than when you're doing military analysis. Again, when you're talking about plans and intentions of an organization, a country, or even a person, what you're essentially trying to do is read someone's mind, which is impossible. 
And the problem is when you're an intelligence analyst and you tell the president or a member of his staff something that you think is going to happen and then it doesn't, you immediately are a part of an intelligence failure, which comes up over and over again. I mean, if you look at our press, uh, any station, this is even a political uh, political suggestion. If you look at how our press covers things, every time the CIA or the, the intelligence community in general doesn't get something right, it's viewed as an intelligence failure. Because even if products or briefings that the CIA gives, uh, whether publicly, which is rare, but whether publicly or to its policymakers are appropriately caveated, people hear one thing, and they do this all the time. And it ends up in the press, intelligence failure. I, I've actually had to go on MSNBC, or I didn't have to. I was asked to go on MSNBC uh, to talk about uh, a strike in Pakistan that killed an American, uh, two, uh, two Americans, excuse me. And it was presented to me as how, you know, how do we account for this intelligence failure? And, you know, as it turned out, MSNBC knew this. They had done, they being the IC, had done hours of surveillance, surveillance over the, the home that they were intending to strike. And they had intelligence that said uh, that there was al-Qaeda leadership there. And then they bombed it, and it turned out that there was, in fact, al-Qaeda leadership there, except there was also American hostages. And that had never been picked up in the intelligence. So was that an intelligence failure? Now, I only had a couple minutes to actually have this conversation on MSNBC, but you know, I did suggest that, well, it wasn't a complete failure because the intelligence said there was al-Qaeda leadership there, and there was. Now, what the collection didn't pick up was that there was also Americans there. Certainly what happened was a horrific tragedy. There's no question about that. But the media, and I, you know, I think people in general, because you have to really be self-aware of, of this stuff, they forget that there are just inherent uncertainties in our life and when you're talking about things or you're taking action about things that are going to happen in the future and most of the stuff that we talk about in the intelligence world is about things that are going to happen in the future or set up in some sort of if then construction if you do x then we expect y will happen so just to use Russia as an example, since it is a current example, I am sure that someone has asked the intelligence community, how will Putin, or even more vaguely, how will Russia respond if the U.S. heightens sanctions against Russia, or the U.S. and the EU heighten sanctions? How will Russia respond? Which is a fair question, because that's what policymakers need to evaluate when they're deciding whether or not uh, to heighten sanctions. There's no matter how talented an analyst is, you're not going to get things 100% right. It's not possible. So I've essentially told you that doing, so far at least, that doing intelligence work is, is hard. And because you have to answer unanswerable questions and you have to make predictions of the future, and that's frankly not possible. Which the logical question would be, well, then why on earth are we paying people to do this if you're telling me that they can't do it? Well, here's the issue. Whether or not we can predict the future, our policymakers, which fundamentally are the people that intelligence professionals are supporting, 
they have to make decisions now based on what they think is going to happen in the future. So let me give you a, an easy example. One of the things you'll you'll frequently hear is that our military is always fighting the last war. Well, we you know we weren't prepared for Iraq and Afghanistan or Afghanistan and Iraq because you know we were prepared to fight a war against Russia and we had never done counterinsurgency and and how could we not be prepared? But think about right now as we presumably or hopefully drawing down in both uh, the Iraq theater, uh, we'll now start to include Syria as part of the Iraq theater, but the Iraq-Syria theater as well as the Afghanistan theater, is we're drawing down those forces. There's certainly going to be an element of our Pentagon, of our military, and also in our in civilian intelligence community, who has to start thinking about the next war. Because unfortunately, even though I can't predict the future, I'm pretty certain the United States is going to be in a war again, uh, and unfortunately probably during my lifetime. But even if there's not, we still need to prepare for one. All right, so what do we prepare for? What's the first question that military planners and strategists and the people who need to decide what kind of equipment we want they, I mean, they need to know who you're going to fight so that they can procure or at least request the right kind of equipment. So I imagine if you, and I'm guessing, but I imagine if you went to the Pentagon right now and asked their military analyst, okay, who is the most likely adversary in the next U.S. war? They'd probably say something like, well, you know, if I had to pick one, it's going to be China or maybe Russia. Okay, so then the military planners then have to run back and they, they start to come up with equipment that is going to be most effective fighting the Chinese troops. So if we're going to fight China, we might need, need a lot of bombers, uh, long-range uh, strike planes. Uh, we're going to need X number of troops, and they're going to need to know how to fight under this terrain, and we know that the Chinese use the following military tactics, so we'll need to be able to respond to that. All right, that's great. Well, but then what happens if our next adversary is Venezuela? Completely different climate. And rather than it being a formal military war where they're not a nuclear power, so we don't have to worry about that, they don't have much of an air force. And by the way, they may have a great air force. I actually don't know enough about Venezuela's military, but just bear with me. They don't have much of an air force. So we will have, we're starting to have superiority of the sky, so we're going to need to be able to have to fight this way under this terrain. The, the truth is, whoever we fight next, we're probably not sure who it is, and we can't be sure. And it's going to be a surprise, and the people who are trying to predict those things right now probably aren't right, or they might, you know, they might have a one out of five chance. Well, you know, it's it's 25% chance it's China, 25% chance it's Russia. And then it's a 3% chance that it's Venezuela. And it turns out to be Venezuela. And I'm sorry to pick on Venezuela, but just wanted to pick a country that was different than China. Nonetheless, the military, the policymakers, need to put plans. They need to start spending money, lots of money. And they need to start shaping an, a military and training soldiers to fight a certain way. Our soldiers can't be trained to fight, fight everybody and fight all different kinds of wars. It takes too much time. It's too difficult. And it took a lot of time in Iraq before we figured out how to do counterinsurgency better. I mean, I think it must have been four or five years before we really changed our mindset. 
so fundamentally, I think what my, my point is here is, and it takes you a while to realize this when you get there. It's not like they tell you this in the, in the interview. At the CIA. Uh, in fact, they usually just focus on how exciting and awesome the job is, which uh, all things considered, I thought it was a pretty good job. But fundamentally, an intelligence analyst is going to face two, two conflicting issues that aren't reconcilable, in my opinion. The first is the need to make judgments under extremely uncertain circumstances, typically with really lousy intelligence. And by what do I mean by lousy intelligence? If if you think of information as a zero-sum thing, which you shouldn't, but just for the exercise, let's let's do that. You're never going to have nearly enough uh, of what you want. Again, if you're just trying to measure the size of the army in Oslandia, you're lucky if you get the size of one platoon or you know the size of a few platoons, and they're probably all going to be different sizes and have different types of people there. And you're not going to know how many corps or how many armies are in the overall military of Oslandia. But someone's going to ask you, well, how big is it and how effective is it? And you're going to have to make those judgments anyway. And it can be an extremely frustrating thing, especially when you get into, you know, talking about or when you when you actually put yourself out there and start making assessments because there's so much uncertainty. People are always there to to tell you why you're wrong. Um, But we can save that conversation for another day. Just in case you're not really sure what 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 I mean, let me uh, let me just use a personal example here. Has anyone asked you? about your five-year plan? Like, have you ever met with a mentor or, you know, talked with someone about your career and they said, what's your five-year plan? You need a five-year plan. Well, and I didn't appreciate this at the time. It's just, this is one of those things on reflection. The last time I had a five-year plan was June of 2001. It's right after I graduated from college. Uh, I went to school in New York and I had enlisted into the Army. And I had a five-year plan. I was going to enlist into the Army. I was going to go through basic training, uh, airborne school, learn how to jump out of planes, and then get into uh, the Ranger Regiment. So the 75th Ranger Regiment. There's three three battalions in the regiment, first, second, third. Didn't matter which one I went to, but I wanted to get into the Ranger Regiment. And then after you get into regiment, at some point they send you to Ranger School. So that was those were my goals for you know, the first 18 months, two years in the military, and then I thought, you know, I'll be a good soldier. I'll get to see a little bit of the world. I knew the regiment uh, fairly regularly traveled to Germany or Thailand to do some training missions, so I thought that'll be cool. I haven't been to those places. So I'll get to travel. Uh, I'll be a good soldier. I'll make it into the regiment. I will get my ranger tab, and then after three years, I'll do one of two things. So I'm going to completely close off my options. I will either get out and maybe go to business school, or I will, uh, if I like the military, I'll decide what either to stay in, and then if I stay in, I can continue as an enlisted man, or become a helicopter pilot, or put in to become an officer. And that's that was my, my next five years, and I think I knew exactly what I'd done. If I'd done the three years in the military that I signed up for, and then gone to two years in business school, and that would have been five years. So that was a pretty sound five-year plan, whether or not I stayed in the military. Well, if you heard me up front, I said this was June of 2001. So my entire five-year plan got 
thrown right out the window three months later about you know, my second to last week of basic training, which was 9-11. And I remember still being out uh, in Fort Benning, Georgia. That's where I did basic training. And then that becomes one station unit training. Basically, they rather they, they put basic training and, and your infantry training, which is what I needed to get into the range of battalion. Uh, they do it just do it at the same place. And we were at the last part uh, of our of what I will just call our basic training. And we were doing a live fire exercise, I think team sized, on one of the ranges in Fort Benning, Georgia. And I remember our drill sergeants calling us together. And having us all take a knee and then telling us that planes had hit the World Trade Center, collapsed both towers, that they thought tens of thousands, you remember at first we thought tens of thousands of people had been killed in lower Manhattan. And that planes had also hit the Pentagon. And we knew these weren't accidents and we knew that the United States was under attack. Some of 20 one-year-old, I actually hadn't turned 22 yet, 21-year-old, private, for all intents and purposes, I was a specialist, but I was treated like a private in basic training. And for as for many of us, that five-year plan didn't matter anymore. And our my entire mentality, when I had come from college in New York, the entire way I looked at the world changed dramatically, and everything that I wanted to do changed dramatically. So that's why I'm always a little dubious of five-year plans because my plan, like I said, was thrown out the window. And I went through Ranger Battalion, uh, got into the regiment. I did go to Ranger School and graduate, and then I, but I also went to Afghanistan and Iraq uh, multiple times. And when I got out, applied to the CIA, which I had never considered in my life. Uh, until I w- was in the military. So I applied to the CIA, and that's where I ended up working for, you know, as I said earlier, the better part of eight years and worked on a number of things that I never would have thought of. I mean, even, and this is all in the public domain, even just the amount of effort that goes into counterterrorism um, at all levels of government is dramatically different from pre-9-11 to post-9-11, and understandably so. Um, but again, it's an example of how we couldn't predict the future. But again, that's the tension one of the tensions that I think we're going to try to explore with this podcast here, that on the one hand, we have to do this. We have to predict, make predictions. We have to assess things under enormous levels of uncertainty, but we're not very good at it. And how can we reconcile those two issues? How can we be make ourselves better and one of the goals that I, I at least have for this podcast is making sure that for the, those of you who will deign to listen to us, that you understand the context that these decisions are being made. When, you know, when, when the director of national intelligence says something publicly and it sounds a little strange, he's probably speaking intelligence ease, but what does that actually mean? Why is he caveating it in that way? And when you hear certain predictions that are just completely crazy, we'll point that out because that happens all the time. Because frankly, it gets really hard and people get tired and then they get lazy and then they just start throwing numbers out there whether or not they're actually grounded in reality. So we're going to have a lot to talk about here. Um, This should be a good podcast and I promise you we're not going to talk only about 
just thinking about thinking because that would get very boring. Uh, and there's so many other things going on right now. We could do a whole podcast just on ISIS. I mean, ISIS is one of the craziest groups in the history of mankind, in my opinion. I don't think we've seen a group like this since Genghis Khan and the Mongolians were conquering half of half of uh, China and expanding all the way into Iraq, uh, coincidentally. Um, and I don't suggest, by the way, that I believe ISIS is going to expand that greatly. But even going back a few years, even going back to about you know, 2007, 2008, I don't think anyone would have expected that ISIS would have expanded in the way it has. I mean, for a while, looking at what was in the media, people, people didn't even know that this group existed. And, you know, it's actually been around for almost, well, in some form, it's been around since we invaded Iraq in the first place. But no one would have expected things would that ISIS would have grown. And, and how does that happen? And, you know, is that actually a big surprise for the intelligence community? Uh, the other thing that we'll want to talk about, which is especially timely, is the intelligence reforms that are going on. Uh, just this week, Congress passed the 2015 Freedom Act, which curtailed parts of NSA's ability to spy on us. Um, primarily, it curtailed its ability, well, it completely erased its ability, blew it away, its ability to collect our phone metadata. And But it didn't do much to Section 702 of, of the Patriot Act, which that has more to do with what kind of information they can collect uh, via the internet. And, you know, that's set to expire here in the next two years. So it's worth Americans understanding how much privacy they have as compared to freedom. I, I know that John Oliver on his show has pointed out that Americans don't really seem to care. Um, but these are issues that are fundamental to to our country. So in any event, I just want to point out that there's a ton of things to talk about here. Uh, you know, I, I'm writing for Overt Action uh, over at action.org, www.overtaction.org. And it's composed of a number of uh, intelligence professionals, some still active, um, some who worked there for years like I did. And, you know, all of us have pretty good insight into what's going on. And again, I, you know, I think one of our goals is we want to pull back the curtain so that people can get an understanding of what's going on with their intelligence community. Uh, it is perfectly justified uh, that a lot of what our government does is secretive, and I'm, I don't think that that's a controversial statement to make. But one of the things I think we'll be able to do is provide a little more context uh, that may not be obvious to someone who hasn't worked hasn't worked in that industry. And you know that's not much different than someone who who trades stocks, which, by the way, is another example of people trying to predict the future. And if you look at the data, they don't succeed much better than the non-experts. Um, but in any event, we'll have a lot to talk about here, and I thank you for listening. For additional reading on this and related topics, check out Black Swan, Fooled by Randomness, and pretty much any book by Nicholas Taleb. Also read Psychology of Intelligence Analysis by Richard Hewer, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and The Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver. And of course, www.overtaction.org.